This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, since the 1990s, there's been an increasing recognition that erectile dysfunction, also known as ED, is a common problem. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. J.C. Trussell. He's Associate Professor of Urology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Trussell. Thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. So let's start by just defining this. What exactly do we mean when we use the term erectile dysfunction? Yes, that's been uh, defined actually by the uh, NIH and National Institutes of Health as the consistent inability to obtain or maintain an erection satisfactory uh, for sexual function satisfactory for either the partner or, or their patient. So if somebody's unhappy with their erectile quality, uh, they could feel like they should come see a urologist for a treatment and diagnosis. So is there a period of persistence that's also required? In other words, if you have an erratic or an occasional problem like this, is that the same as perhaps having it for a consistent period of time? Or is there, is there a guideline there? There is no guideline for timing of the inconsistent erection. So it can be the first time uh, that occurs, they uh, could seek some help or if it's not getting better, uh, because sometimes there are some situational uh, circumstances that cause a temporary loss of erectile quality and that can be uh, self-remedied. So how common is it actually? I mean, I mentioned in the beginning of the introduction that people are recognizing that it is more common. It was obviously something that wasn't to be discussed. It's never zero um, percent, so it can happen in younger people. Uh, but generally, after 40 years of age, you take that person's age, and that's the percentage of people who will have erectile difficulty, not complete erectile loss. That's consistently 10 percent of clients 40 years or older. But 40 uh, percent of 40-year-olds are going to have some degree of difficulty, 60 percent of 60-year-olds, and so on. Wow. If you following adjustment for age, though, clearly that's that's a case. Are there other problems that people have that could also play a role or co-occur with erectile dysfunction? Yes, stacked on top of uh, age, which none of us can do anything about, obviously, are other comorbid issues that will affect the the nerves and the blood supply to the to the uh, penis. Uh, such things as diabetes, uh, high cholesterol surgery, radiation, anything that can mess up the nerves or arteries in the pelvis. Even high blood pressure. High blood pressure, yep. Right. So what exactly, we talk about symptomatology, what exactly is the person experiencing? They often, there's two types of erectile dysfunction. One is a lack of uh, adequate blood flow, arterial blood flow into the penis. Those will typically have a a non-erection or a soft erection, going forward. There's another one where the veins exiting the, the penis get kinked off like kinking a garden hose. And if those veins are not kinked off adequately, a person will get a moderate to good erection, but then it tends to fade away shortly uh, after the erection has started. So they'll complain of uh, an erection that, that loses its power after a, cu- a couple minutes. Does reduced sexual desire also qualify as a symptom? Or is it often just a response to? That is a, a comorbid or a concurrent problem. So when guys come in and describe erectile dysfunction, I have to be careful to determine if it's a, a low sexual drive. It could be uh, premature ejaculation or rapid ejaculation, which is treated completely different than the topic that we're discussing today. Um, and it, some guys have a low libido, a low sexual drive, and then we should check that uh, by blood tests, and that's treated also in a different fashion than 
treating erectile dysfunction. But when we get back to ED or erectile dysfunction, let's just run through a brief kind of um, overview in terms of the different physical causes that could play a role. Because, there, I mean, like you mentioned, things like heart disease, diabetes. Does obesity play a role there as well in terms of a comorbidity? Indirectly, obesity can play a role uh, as guys... Uh, become more obese, they have a breakdown of the testosterone into a higher level of estradiol, and that will chemically uh, cause a reduction in their libido and sexual drive. There is no direct cause of a low testosterone on erectile dysfunction, although this has been debated in the literature. Um, it's also a big part of what current advertising is in terms of people having them check their ter- testosterone level as being causative for ED. Yeah, that has gone full circle. So about 20 years ago, they were saying that they, meaning the literature, was saying that testosterone had no effect on sexual function or erections. Then about 10 years ago, they said, hey, replacing the testosterone will improve an erection. And now they're sort of going back saying it's not terribly helpful. It doesn't hurt to try if somebody qualifies for testosterone replacement, uh, but it will not directly uh, improve your erections. How about things that there are other disease entities like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or um, even sleep disorders? Do those all con- potentially contribute as well? They certainly can contribute. Um, for instance, I have um, young men, 20s, 30s, trying to have a baby, and they have such stress and anxiety for that event of trying to have a baby that, that they come and report no erections or very limited erections, and they will in that case, be temporarily on an adjunct such as a, a pill like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis to help them through that time of stress. That's very interesting. We'll talk about treatment um, a bit later, but you just alluded to something that was my next question, actually, which is what role does psychology or the psychological state of being play? In other words, does depression play a role? Does anxiety play a role, or to what degree? That's one question I do ask in uh, the clients with ED. If there was a specific event or time that the erectile difficulty occurred, there could be a new medical condition like a recent heart attack or a recent stroke. Uh, more socially, there could be a change in relationship, um, a new partner. Uh, so clearly anxiety with a new partner or change in relationship can cause erectile dysfunction. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with urologist Dr. J.C. Trussell, and we're talking about erectile dysfunction. So what are the consequences of this in terms of the person's life? I mean, you know, when they're suffering from that, what exactly does it lead to? These men often describe uh, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, uh, situational anxiety if they're um, in, in a situation where they're anticipating uh, a relationship during that day, uh, they they might try to avoid that situation. Uh, some, the lucky ones, have a supportive partner that will help them through these times and through the treatment. Some of these treatments uh, might work better with with partner involvement. Uh, so if the partner can be supportive, that really helps these guys respond more quickly to to interventions and treatment. So. It's, it's interesting because while stress and anxiety or depression could be causative, even if they weren't there prior to the occurrence, often they follow having this experience. So they're pretty much wrapped in it in some way. It's the, fully wrapped together. The correct. emotions. So how do you make the diagnosis? What do you do? Well, generally, if, if somebody complain, uh, reports that they're not uh, satisfied with their erection, that's all that's necessary to, to diagnose erectile dysfunction and to then treat them. Um, 
more pointed with their past medical history. We check about heart disease, uh, anything that will, uh, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, check on depression, and make sure they've not had radiation or surgery to, to the pelvis. Um, so we go through a litany of questions. Those, unfortunately, uh, are often done and in the past, and we just have to work around that. There are some medications even, like beta blockers, medications that end in OL, like labetalol, atenolol. Those uh, are often so good at preventing heart heart attacks and future heart disease that we have to work around it. But there's others, uh, like anti-anxiety medicines, Paxil and Prozac, uh, that can, can maybe be adjusted and if removed or lowered the dose, erectile quality can return. That's very important, I think. So you really do look at all these potentially contributing factors and what medications and what other interventions have taken place that could be contributing to the current problem. You're right. And then you try to adjust accordingly. So it's obviously not one size fits all in terms of treatment. Tell me a little bit about what the most common and most effective treatments are today. There's a three-tiered treatment algorithm that we go through. If uh, the first tier is oral agents, uh, like Viagra Levitra Cialis, those are for uh, clients who do not have nitroglycerin. That's a strict contraindication because that will cause, uh, when combined, uh, vasodilation and passing out and, and difficulties in that regard. So who are those patients who use nitroglycerin? Just remind us. Are those with angina? I mean... Yeah, usually with angina uh, or a recent uh, heart attack, uh, pain with, with exercise, uh, some of those clients are not qualified to start uh, physical activity, and those clients need to see their cardiologist to be cleared for activity uh, such as uh, sexual activity and, and other activities uh, for that matter. Those high-risk clients are those with a recent heart attack within two weeks, unstable angina, or uncontrolled high blood pressure. And short of those problems, for the most part, are most people, let's say men over 40, able to take these other drugs that you mentioned? Yes, and there's no restriction to their sexual activity. So um, basically, those have been, tell me about their efficacy and what you found in practice. Do they solve the problem in most cases? Yes, about 70% of uh, clients will respond uh, adequately to, to the pills. And if they don't respond, we can often try a different pill that, that when taken correctly or when, when changed out, will allow uh, the 30% of non-responders to have some response, probably another 10%. So that's a pretty high ratio <clears throat> in terms of the efficacy of, of oral medications. Yes, it's uh, the first line because it's uh, pretty effective and, and works well with a few side effects of uh, occasional headache and facial flushing, but generally well tolerated. So in your experience... Just take us through. What a, pa- a patient comes to you. You do the you do you do your due diligence. You do a physical, or you just take the history, and then you decide that this person truly has ED, and you're going to give them the oral medications. In your experience, is that you know what's the next step? In most cases, does that work? And if not, where do you go from there? That'll work in seventy percent of uh, patients. I have them come back and see me uh, if it's not working in, in a few months, and. Uh, Step one, as I mentioned, is pills. Step two, tier two, is uh, other interventions like a vacuum device or an injectable agent. There is a little suppository that goes in the tip of the penis called MUSE, M-U-S-E. And anywhere along this spectrum, uh, if there is a concern that the patient has about anxiety or depression, we can always have uh, mental health uh, providers uh, help them out. 
if the uh, second line or second tier intervention uh, doesn't work or is not appreciated by the patient, the third line, the last line is uh, surgery where we would implant a penile prosthesis, sort of like an artificial knee for knee pain, but this is a prosthetic that causes the phallus, the penis, to be rigid uh, when they desire for sexual activity. But does that does it create rigidity all the time, or do they have the option? Does it kind of function along with natural variability or natural desire? The most common prosthesis is uh, one that is uh, filled with saline. There's a reservoir that's tucked in next to the bladder like a balloon, and there's a pump in the scrotum like a third testicle. All this is hidden under the skin, and that pump allows fluid, the saline, to be transferred into sleeves that are in the penis, making it hard. And then after sexual activity, that pump has a release valve where the fluid drains from the penis back into the reservoir tucked by the bladder. So does that, what's the efficacy of that in your experience? Does that work well for the patients who are most appropriate for it? That works uh, quite well. The uh, satisfaction rate for the patient is 92%. So nine, nine out of 10 clients will be very happy with the penile implant. And the satisfaction rate for their partners is about uh, 90%, 9 out of 10 as well. Okay, we have only a little bit of time left. What's the bottom line? What do you tell people? I mean, in terms of if they find themselves in this circumstance. Erectile dysfunction is common, very common. It's quite treatable. And uh, although in the past we've done a lot of workup to figure out if it's the blood flow in or the venous leaking out of the penis, no vascular surgery works. uh, So we no longer do that extensive workup. So you're not even doing surgery. So you're basically offering these three tiers, and it sounds like you get a pretty good response across the board There's to a very, one of those three. That's exactly right. Very helpful, very important information, and I'm sure it can alleviate a lot of anxiety. And clearly the, the point of the psychology involved shouldn't be ignored and the importance of the working along with a sexual partner. That's correct. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. J.C. Trussell. He's Associate Professor of Urology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.